Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Um, so today, this Sunday, is my favorite sermon that I'm ever going to preach at Remedy. I don't think I'll ever preach more of a favorite sermon than I will today. You'll know why soon. But uh, we are in Philippians chapter 3 today. We've been going through the book of Philippians, and I can feel the anticipation. I can feel it. I why is it his favorite? Um, so we're in Philippians chapter 3 today, and we've been going through the book of Philippians. We're just going to look at uh, two verses today, 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11. But what I'm going to do is we're going to stand and we're going to read um, together. But for, for context sake, we're going to jump up to 7. And just so we can have the context of the flow to understand 10 and 11, we're going to start at 7 and read 7 all the way through verse 11. So let's all stand and we'll read and then I'll pray and... Then we'll jump in. Let's look at verse 7. It says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but... That which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then you have where we're going to be today. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, these are truly weighty words. From the Apostle Paul. And the task in, in front of me is an amazingly weighty task. And so I pray for a filling of the Spirit now. I pray that you would remove me from this equation. And that it would be you speaking through me. Because it's your word, there are amazing things that can happen that you've promised. That your word is able to do. Amazing things, not just in my own heart, but in all of our hearts here as we hear from you. And so would you come now and do that? Would you come now and help us understand what it means to know Christ Jesus, our Lord? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to give you a little bit of context in case you're here and kind of jumping in with us in Philippians 3. There's something you should kind of understand what's going on. So these verses will make the most sense. So we're going to we're going to start out here. And we're going to funnel down into 10 and 11. The big picture of some of the things that we've been talking about as we've been going through uh, the, the book of Philippians is where we are right now. Paul's been telling us that we should imitate people around us. You look at 317 where it says brothers join in imitating me. So he's writing to this Philippians. That he's saying brothers People that know Christ, join in imitating me. And not only me, you can see he's going to use the word us. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And so textually we've seen that that's actually talking about Jesus in chapter 2. And then the end of chapter 2, we're seeing that it's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then here in chapter 3, the beginning, we've seen that it's talking about the Apostle Paul himself. And so all these examples that you have in Christ... With your spiritual eyes, keep focusing on Christ. But with your physical eyes, watch the example that we have. And we've, I'm not going to unpack the old sermons that we kind of talked about. But that's, that's where we are. But last week, as Paul was kind of talking about himself, 
we saw that he started talking about these people called the Judaizers, where he had gone and preached the gospel at Philippi and left. And these Judaizers who loved the Old Testament came in behind him and said, oh, yes, it's faith in Christ, just like Paul said, but also adherence to Old Testament practices like circumcision. So if you really want to be a Christian, then that means faith in Christ plus circumcision equals um, really being a Christian. And so Paul addresses that in Philippians Three, starting around verse five, he goes, if anybody thinks that adding something to being a Christian, uh, if anybody wants to do that, I can do that. And then lists out the big things that he said. I was circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel. He lists them all out. And then he says, all those things that I could brag about, actually, all that is just counted as rubbish. The word here is um, we have in our Bibles is rubbish. It's also garbage or dung or scubala, a very, very strong word. For poop. I mean, a very, very strong word. I can't believe I just said that. A very strong word for dung um, is what Paul says. And he says, all those things, they're just counted as that. Instead of, we want to say, the best thing is, you can see it right there in verse 8, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So if I'm going to hold up some things that would be importance, all those things that I think that I have to do in order to have a right standing with God, they're all dung. The right thing that I should have is, the right idea is knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then... Right there in verse 9, he tells us, how do we know Christ Jesus our Lord? How do we do that? And that that verse 9 is going to be our our diving board to see verse 10. So in verse 9, as it's it's telling us, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. In other words, I can't do things to have a right standing with God, like be circumcised on the eighth day to be an Israelite of all that stuff. Instead, I don't have righteousness of my own. But here it is, that which comes through faith in Christ The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the only way I can be righteous or justified is by faith in God. And then we have our little dash. Now that's just English. That's not, Paul didn't put a dash. Um, But what we're going to see in verse 10 and 11 are four things. Okay? But remember verse 9. He's talking about righteousness that has been given to us by God through faith. So what are some of the benefits of being counted righteous by God because of faith in Christ Jesus? So what we're going to see today are four of the benefits, four of the amazing, astounding benefits that Christians have because they have been counted righteous by God because of their faith. We're going to see those four things. Now, before we jump into these four things in verses 10 and 11, if you spend any time in in, in church, none of these things are going to be like brand new to you more than likely. So what I've been praying is that these four things would hit you in a new and fresh way that they would amaze you again. And you would say, that's, a, that's an astounding truth that I can't believe. And so these are four benefits of being righteous before God, four benefits of being counted righteous in Christ. And so let's go ahead and look at the first one. They're very textual. You can grab them yourself, but I'm going to show you. Just follow with me anyway. So the first benefit that we see is right here in the very first 10, that I may know him. The first benefit of being counted in righteousness, not just being declared innocent, but instead also being invited into not just cleansing, but a relationship with God. One of the amazing benefits of being righteous before God because of your faith is that you can know God. You can know him. J.I. Packer wrote a book called, very appropriately, Knowing God. And in that book, he says this. 
He says, knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. Knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. Now, here's the problem, I think, that happens. Because the big question that lies out there. In my knowing God, do I find my heart thrilled that I know him? I mean, is it just thrilling all the time? It's not. Why? Here's why. This is the premise I'm starting with. And he says there, he says this. There is a vast difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Knowing God is knowing his love and being in love with him. Knowing about God is knowing facts, figures, and things. So we wouldn't say that we know God for like, oh, I am thrilled that I know God. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. Wow, that thrills my heart. There are 27 in the new, 66 total. My heart is becoming so thrilled because I know all this stuff about God. That's not how it works. Not knowing things about God doesn't thrill our hearts. I think it's best illustrated this way. Um, I think all of you know. Um, this is why it's my favorite sermon, by the way. Um, I think some of y'all know that in a short couple days, we're going to be graced in the city of Rock Hill with a Krispy Kreme. Did, did you know this? Krispy Kreme is actually coming to the city of Rock Hill. So I thought that it would be great. Um, this isn't the real deal. I know if you know anything about Krispy Kreme, it's the flat box where all the magic is made. This is kind of the, the other thing, the kind of the, the knockoff, but still Krispy Kreme. In seven seconds, if you pop this in the microwave, you're on your way towards heaven. Um, but Krispy Kreme, um, you can do this. I want to I help us understand my premise, which is there's a vast difference between knowing about God and knowing God. If you go on Krispy Kreme, did you know on their website, they actually have a mission. I'm going to help you understand about Krispy Kreme and ask you if you know. First thing is they have a mission. This is Krispy Kreme's mission to touch and enhance lives through the joy that is Krispy Kreme. That's their mission to touch and enhance lives through the joy. Do you feel like, you know, Krispy Kreme? Not only that, the vision of Krispy Kreme, the vision is to be the worldwide leader in sharing delicious tastes and creating joyful memories. Memories. They want to create memories. This is their vision. They even have values. Did you know that the, the founder of Krispy Kreme was Vernon Rudolph? Right? So now you're becoming to know Krispy Kreme, right? You can say, I know their values. Consumers are the lifeblood. This is their value. Consumers are the lifeblood, if you will, the center of the donut. This is what they say. There is no substitute for quality in our service. This is a value. Impeccable presentation is critical. Now, do you know Krispy Kreme? No, you know about Krispy Kreme. You don't know Krispy Kreme until you hold one. And this is where it's at. This is the magic, the original glazed. It doesn't get any better than this. I wish I had a microwave. It would be more. But you don't know Krispy Kreme until you say, mm-hmm. now I know Krispy Kreme. And this is the whole point. I, I didn't think this through in first service, but I brought a drink this time. It was really awkward. So... My whole point is, just because you know a whole lot of facts about God, doesn't mean you know God. The Lord is asking you not to just come and know a whole bunch of facts about him. Know where Galatians is. Be really good at memorizing books of the Bible. He's saying, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. He's saying, you can know me. Benefits of righteousness isn't knowing about God. And I think that... Most of us find ourselves 
in that place as believers, trying to enhance and grow our knowledge about God rather than thinking he's inviting me to know him. Now, I'm not saying don't know about God. You should, but don't just know about God. He's saying, come and know me. It's calculated to thrill a person's heart. Knowing God means it's not we're not talking about for the first time. We're saying that now that you're in Christ, now that you have the benefit of righteousness given to you, you can know him more and you can know him more and you can know him more. D.A. Carson picking up on this idea says we shall just listen. This is unbelievable. We shall spend eternity getting to know Jesus better. Think about that. Spend eternity getting to know. There'll never be a place where you don't know him better. He says, knowing Jesus is knowing God. Define God in your head. Define the vastness, the amazingness of God. Knowing Jesus is knowing God because he is God. He's saying you can know God. The exploration of God, of knowing God, is eternal and inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. Never stops. And he says... It is our duty and our delight to know Jesus Christ better and better. That's just astounding. Can you imagine? Forever. There's not ever a moment while you're here on earth or even in heaven where you're not invited into a more deeper knowledge of knowing him. Not knowing about him, but knowing him. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. You're invited into that reality forever. And it's inexhaustible. That's what we're saying. One of the benefits of knowing Christ Jesus is that I get to know him. I get to know him. Now I want to make a couple comments about knowing him from this book, J.I. Packer. This is what he says. He says, these will not be on the screen. Which I highly recommend you go read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And whatever, you know... Time period it takes you to read a book, whether it's a month or a week or a year. Read this book. It's amazing. Um, not in place of the Bible. But this is what he says. He's, he talks about three things about knowing, knowing God. Um, our knowing God is predicated on three points. Number one, knowing God is personal. Knowing God is personal. God is going to open you up and lay you bare. Has, it, has any of you experienced this already? As you press in to know Christ, he begins to reveal things to you about yourself that are only going to happen when you come into the presence of his holiness and you realize just how holy he is. He's going to open you up and lay you bare. This is not because he hates you. This is not designed to make you run away. This is designed because he loves you to bring you in, that he would open you up, lay you bare and deal with you because he is personal. This doesn't happen when we just know about God. This happens when we know God, know God, when we taste and see that he is good. Packer says you can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. I think that this section on knowing God, this first point is really important for remedy to get a handle on. Because if there's any way that we strive towards knowing God is let me give my book of Romans and some systematic theology by Grudem and I'm going to know God. I don't think we're ever going to 
lean the other way too much. We're probably always going to lean towards the theological side, which is good. But listen to this next thing. This is this is pretty astounding. Coming from J.I. Packer, Mr. Theology. J.I. Packer says this, knowing God's not only personal, knowing God is involving. It's involving, not evolving, involving. He says it's a matter of mind, which we all would agree with mostly. Um, but also it's a matter of will and feeling. Mr. Theology says knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as intellectual. He says we must not find ourselves ignorant of the emotional and experiential side of knowing God. Someone that's very theological said, don't ever find yourself ignorant of the emotional and experiential side of knowing God. Now, you can't just launch off into that and throw truth out of the window. He would never agree to this. Jesus would never agree to that. As you press into know about God, as you press into know deeper things about God, don't ever let that just be all that you do and that you find yourself ignorant on the experiential side. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just create you with a brain, but he also created you with a soul and a heart and feelings and emotions? Emotions aren't bad. If that's all you know, it can be dangerous. But God has designed you to be an emotional being. He wants you to know him on an intellectual side, but also never neglect the knowing him on the relationship side, on the experiential side. That's from Packer. And I think that's from Paul, which is from Jesus. So knowing him is personal, knowing him is involving. And this is, um, sorry, this one is pretty amazing. It was making my paper really sticky. It was like going to come up. So, sorry. Next one is knowing God is a matter of grace. Think about it this way. You would never ever know God had he not first decided that you could know him. It's all of grace that you even get to know him. This is how he says it. God has completely taken the initiative for us to know him. All my knowledge of Jesus depends, absolutely depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. All of my knowledge of Jesus it is absolutely dependent on Jesus's sustained or continual initiative and in wanting to know me. Had he not done that or continually doing that, I would not know him. And we are, as believers, invited in to know God, not just a friendship, which is good, but God himself. That's why Packer says we can say my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. He did that. All of an act of grace that we can know him. And he continually takes the initiative for us to know him. We are never out of his mind. He is always thinking about us. He always knows us. And the reverse is true. We, here it is, can know him. Isn't that amazing? This might be review. But one of the benefits of righteousness is that you can know deeply, intimately, intellectually, experimentally, experimentally, whatever the word is, Jesus, experientially. Is that right? Um, on the experiential side, you can know God. And not only can you know him, he's inviting you in 
to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's inviting you in to say, knowing God is a relationship that has been calculated to thrill my heart. So, you know the question I'm going to ask. Is your heart thrilled by knowing God? Do you let your heart get thrilled by knowing other things more deeply and intimately than God? Your heart has been created to be thrilled by God, not by other things. If you've noticed, the thrill for other things always dies. Doesn't it? It always dies. Maybe it's thrilling for a week. Maybe it's thrilling for two weeks. But it always becomes an idol. And then you become extremely convicted. And it dies. But never is that the case with God. You've never ever pressed into God more deeply and more deeply and said, I'm so thrilled with God. Oh, I feel kind of bad. I'm not sure if this is good. You've never said that. God is saying, because of the righteousness that I've given you, that you now are completely innocent. You don't just stay there. You are invited in to now know me. The greatest reality, the greatest being ever has invited you in to not just know about him, but to know him inexhaustibly and eternally. That's astounding. The second thing is this. Right here, right after that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You can know the power of his resurrection. That seems kind of subjective, ambiguous. What, what does that mean, Fudd? I can know the power of his resurrection. This is what it means. First of all, let's just take the step back and think about the power of his resurrection. Jesus was dead when he came and died on the cross willingly for our sins. All the wrath, all the wrath of God towards all the sin that had ever existed was poured out on Jesus. So much so that it literally killed Jesus. There he lay. Dead. And the Bible tells us that something Made him alive again. It's called the power of the resurrection. Now just think. If, if something is going to bring the son of God. That God poured out all of his wrath and killed him. If something's going to bring him back to life. If we're thinking about the power that's going to do that. Is it going to be something small or something unbelievably large? More large than we could ever comprehend. Right? So first of all, let's get a right mind about this power. And it's saying that we can know the power of his resurrection. Look with me about three pages back in the book of Ephesians. Look at chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. And Paul's going to talk about the power of the resurrection in verse 20. But let's start with 19. He says that we can know the immeasurable greatness of his power. Look at this. Look at this. Toward us. Who believe. So okay. This power is, is being given to us. It's immeasurable. It's great. And it's being given towards us. What's this power? It's going to tell us in 20. The immeasurable greatness. Who believe according to the working of his great might. Here it is. That he worked also in Christ. 
when he raised him from the dead. So the immeasurable power which God used to resurrect Christ when he raised him from the dead is also, according to verse 19, being given to us, his greatness of his power is being put into us, given toward us. Now back over here. So when it says that we can know the power of his resurrection, it's not just that Jesus was raised from the dead and that power is something that was raised him from the dead, but that exact power is also being given into us, being worked into us and being um, directed towards us. And we also have this power now inside of us. We also have this power inside of us. So I want to, for those of you that wrote down number two, I'm going to frustrate you. You wrote, we can know the power of his resurrection. You can know the power of his resurrection. We can know the power. I want you to actually ch- take the can off and we're going we're gonna to rephrase it. Here it is. You know and have the power of his resurrection. That's, that's different. You have the power of his resurrection. If you are in Christ, you've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. What did the resurrection show us? What did the power of the resurrection show us? Why did Christ die? Christ died for all the sins of all of his children ever. Poured out onto him. And the power of the resurrection is a signal to us that Jesus has now defeated death and sin. That great power that defeated all the sin ever, ever, is being worked into us, as it says in two Ephesians. The power that defeated all the sin ever is being defeated, is being worked into us. And so when we think about the sin that we have, when we think about the amount of sin that we have, if the same power of the resurrection that was put in Christ that defeated all the sin ever is being worked into us as well, when we think about the amount of sin we have versus all the sin ever, there's never a time, never a time where we can say, I just am never going to see this particular sin in my life die. There's never a time that you can say that. Because you have the power of the resurrection in you, which defeated all the sin for all eternity. So that we know if that's working in us, any sin within us, it's nothing. By the power of the resurrection, it can absolutely be put to death. So when we say, you know and have the power of his resurrection, we're talking about the resurrecting power that kills sin. So one of the benefits of righteousness is not that you get to know Jesus, which is amazing. Not just that you get to know Jesus, but also there is never a point in your life where you do not have the ability to completely destroy by the power of the spirit sin in your life. A benefit of righteousness is that the ongoing sin in your life is absolutely defeatable, destroyable. Okay, y'all are, let's do this right here. You can see all the sin in your life be killed because you have the power of the resurrection in you. The Holy Spirit, God himself residing in you. That is amazing. So the first thing is that we can know him. We're going to be invited into the greatest relationship ever. We can know God. The second thing is that we can know and have the power of his resurrection, i.e. no sin has a hold on us if we're in Christ. Here's the third one. And this one is this one is pretty weird. At first read, you're going to say, that's not how I would talk. That's not the way I think I would say it. One of the third benefits of being righteous, counted righteous in Christ is right here. We can share his sufferings. 
you can share in his sufferings. Well, that's, that's not what I would say. <laughs> that's not how I would talk about suffering. As a matter of fact, if you would look at me, look with me here, where it says the word share, that I, I may share in his sufferings. That word is being translated for us in 310, the word share. In, in the Greek, it's the same word in 1-5. Look over at 1-5 with me. It says in 1-5, because of your right here, partnership. We're getting a little bit better understanding, okay? That we get to have a partnership in his sufferings. What he's saying is that we get to have fellowship, partnership, participation in the sufferings of Christ. One of the benefits of righteousness is that you are now invited into partnership, fellowship, and participation in the sufferings of Christ. Well, that sounds even more like I wouldn't talk. Now, I'm not saying that you would participate in the sufferings of Christ in such a way that you're going to go to the cross and die for sin. That's never going to happen for me or anybody. Jesus was the once... Once and for all time, sacrifice made for everyone. But here we are, Paul is telling us in very interesting language that we get to participate in suffering like Jesus did. We get to experience suffering as Jesus did. As a matter of fact, Philippians 1.29 says, and it's even a gift. Here, I've, I've got a present for you. Suffering. Congratulations. And it's just, we read this and we say, what kind of crazy language is this? What, what, what is this? That Paul is saying, this doesn't compute with me. Let me, let me try to explain what I think is going on here. Number one, um, these won't be on the screen. I don't know why I said one. So the first thing is, Isaiah 53 tells us this, that Jesus was a man of sorrows and was familiar with suffering. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He came and lived in order to suffer. And if our master knew suffering, then certainly his servants will. We, we know that from Matthew 10, whenever we were going through the book of Matthew forever. It said in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So if Jesus was persecuted, then certainly we should expect nothing different than towards us. So then what about the language of we get to share and participate, and it sounds like it's supposed to be just this glorious thing, Flood. Why? Why is that? Here's why. This is why it's an honor for us to suffer. We can read that in the, in the end of the Beatitudes, the way that Matthew says it in the end of Beatitudes in Matthew 5, that it's, a, it's an honor. Here's why. If you've ever yourself or had a conversation with someone who has gone through a season of suffering for Christ, they've gone through it. Not in the middle of it, but after they've gone through a season of suffering for Christ and you have a conversation with them, it's and maybe you've experienced this yourself. It always has a familiar sound to it, which is. I'm so thankful that Jesus let me go through that, because if I had not gone through that, I would never have trusted him more intimately, known him more deeply, been more dependent upon Jesus in my life had I not gone through that. What a grace. What an honor. What a glorious gift from God that I got to experience this persecution for him. Because as I gone th went through that, I had nowhere else to go. There was no other place to turn except for Jesus exclusively. All I have is you. All, you're my only hope to get through this. 
So the reason why we can say we get to share in his sufferings, and this is good, is because it provides for us as Christians a more deep, intimate way that we can know Christ Jesus our Lord. That we would not get to know. It's a grace to get to experience the suffering and know Christ in a more deep, intimate way than we ever had before. And when we understand that, then when we're reading verses in Scripture like Acts 5, whenever the disciples were, were told, quit preaching Jesus or we're going to kill you, they said, we're just not going to stop doing that. We're not going to stop doing that. Well, then we're going to beat you up severely and send you out of here. OK. And as they were beaten up severely, they were sent out. Acts 5 says they left the presence of the council where they had just been beat, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. When we think of suffering as a gift, when we say, I get to share in his sufferings, not in a way that's salvific for the world, but in a way that lets me know Christ more deeply. It starts making sense when we read verses, say they were counted worthy to suffer. And then we say, well, then I want to know him more. I'm not looking for suffering in a way, but if the Lord brings it my way, I'm certainly not fleeing the other way. Because that is an avenue, that is a pathway, that is a place where the Lord has gifted me, a place where I can go through this and all the while say, I've got nothing else than Christ right now. I've got people around me, but without Jesus, there's no way I can make it through the suffering for his sake. One last verse on suffering. First Peter 4.12 says, carrying the same idea of suffering being a joy. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. In other words, hey, you're a Christian. Didn't you expect you would suffer? You're surprised? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is what it means to be a believer. Instead, but rejoice. The theme of Philippians, Christ our joy. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And just a side note, one of the greatest things about suffering is not only do we press into Christ more deeply, but after we've gone through that, perhaps this has happened with you, then we get to experience later on in life the, the, the persecution or the suffering that we went to. We get to experience a second Corinthians one moment where someone else is going through that exact same thing. And God uses us to go and comfort them in the same way that we were comforted by Christ and walk with them through it. What a, what a gift that is. So the third thing is one of the gr third greatest things about um, being counted righteous is that we can share in his sufferings right after you see this phrase, we can share in his sufferings. Paul says, becoming like him in his death. We share in his sufferings in such a way that we become like him in his death. James Boyce says the knowledge of Christ's sufferings comes at a very high price. The knowledge of Christ's sufferings comes at a very high price, the price of obedience. In other words, God said to his son from eternity past, I've got a plan to redeem mankind. It's going to cost you your life. There's going to be a lot of suffering and I want you to go. And the son. This obedience came at a very high price, which was his death. The price of obedience is always a high cost. And for us, it's the same thing. Being obedient to what the Lord would have for us comes at a very high price. Obedience is always 
difficult. It's always difficult. Now, as I was reading this, where it says, becoming like him in his death, the, the, the sentence underneath that in verse 11 started making my mind automatically start thinking, Paul's going to start talking about glorification. The whole process of being saved, if you will, becoming a Christian is the moment that the Holy Spirit awakens you that, and you realize you're a sinner. Then you put your faith in Christ and you're justified, this righteousness we're talking about. And then after that, you grow in your Christ likeness from the moment you're saved or put your faith in Christ. You, you're called, that's what's called sanctified. And the moment you die, you go to heaven. And that's whenever you're finally glorified, whenever this sinful body no longer sins anymore. And I'm made to be like Christ. And so when I'm reading this, I'm thinking Paul's jumping towards glorification. He's saying, all right, death, death is when I die physically and I'm supposed to go to heaven then. And so he says, becoming like him in his death. And then he says that I, by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So resurrection of the dead is when I die, is when I go to heaven. And he's saying becoming like him in his death. Oh, when I die, I become like him. And so I automatically jump towards glorification. That first read, I thought that's what he's talking about. But as I started thinking about it more, I'm not sure that he's just talking about glorification. But I also think he's actually talking about sanctification. The moment we get saved... Until we die, becoming like him in his death. This is what I mean. Jesus died. And when he died, he gave an illustration that because he has died now, sin no longer has any rule or reign over us. And so that before I die, before I go to heaven, while I'm still on this earth, sin no longer has rule and reign over me. And so what he's calling me daily then is to come and die. He's calling, me, he's calling me now to become like him in his death while I'm still alive. Become like him in his death. He's saying, now that you are in Christ, John Chambers, you need to put to death all of your desires, all of your wants every single day. And so every day that I'm alive from the moment I get saved till I go to heaven is actually me slowly dying and the life of Christ slowly coming alive. John Calvin says it this way. John Calvin says, we must all therefore be prepared for this. Whenever we get saved until we die, he says that our whole life while we're alive, that our whole life shall represent nothing else than the image of death. We are dying. Christ is coming more alive. Until it produces death itself. We are dying until it produces death itself. And when that happens, that's when the life of Christ is now shown to be in its fullness. So sanctification is you becoming more like Christ. Absolutely. But sanctification is also you daily dying to your wants. You daily dying to your desires, your sins. And that's whenever you're becoming like him. In his death, as the end of, chapter, of verse 10 says. So the fourth one that we're going to see here is this. Where he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So let's, let's recap. Benefits of being counted righteous in Christ. The first is that we can know Christ. Not just know about Jesus. Not just know about God. But we're invited into the greatest relationship ever. That we can know God. The second is that we can now have the power of his resurrection. Complete and utter destruction of any sin in your life. The third one is that we can know his sufferings. We're invited into suffering so that we can know him even more intimately. The last one is this, that we can know 
the resurrection. We can attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you spend any time in church, this is not going to be something that's going to um, surprise you. But um, there are people, however, that this would surprise. They think it's called annihilationism, that the moment they die, they just cease to exist. They're put into the ground and there's nothing afterwards at all. They just cease to exist. That's it. But we as Christians know that this is not true. That there is a promise being held out to us in the Bible. That our physical death is not just when we're annihilated and that's it. And there's nothing further. Christians know that for everyone, Christians or non-Christians, after they physically die, they still keep living eternally. For those that are Christians live eternally in heaven with Christ. For those that are not Christians live eternally being punished for their sin and hell. And so we're having a precious promise here given to us. If you are now being given the benefit of righteousness, you are promised that when you die, you will attain the resurrection from the dead. You will be in heaven with Christ, resurrected just like he was. We should anticipate this and look forward to it absolutely. I mean, just greatly. As a matter of fact, we think about this. um, Paul saying, I'm in the process of dying right now. And as I'm in the process of dying... When I die, I'm going to be in greater glory. I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to be made like Christ perfectly. So if we kind of take this big step back in Philippians and remember the context is imitation of people who are following Christ. Jesus, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and now Paul. Paul's saying, hey, look and imitate me. But realize that as you imitate me, I'm not a perfect model. But this, this model that you're imitating, which is one day going to be in heaven is one day going to have a greater glory. And if you follow me as I follow Christ, you yourself will also attain to the resurrection of, de- of the dead and have this greater glory. So this is a pretty amazing promise that he gives them. So by the way, by means of going into a, a conclusion, what I want to do here is read uh, a quote from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He lived during the World War II. And this quote really is just a perfect summary of this entire text. This idea that since you're counted righteous in Christ, you're invited now to know him. And knowing him means that you never have sin in your life. You can see those sins be put to death. It's going to be a process. It's going to be difficult. But also, um, he's inviting you in to die to yourself. Experience the sufferings of Christ that lets you know Christ more intimately. And one day you're going to be with him in heaven. This is, this is what the, the quote says. It's from The Cost of Discipleship which I also encourage you to read. He says, the cross is, the cross is laid on every Christian. In other words, um, in, in the context, he's saying, at the moment you become a Christian, the, the cross of Christ is actually laid on you. And now, death is expected of you. Not physical. Death is expected of you, of, of your desires. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. He's calling you to let go of all the things that capture your affections, that thrill your heart and start letting only the relationship with God thrill your heart. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of the encounter with Christ. As the old man dies, the more we encounter Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Not physically. But we give our lives over willingly. All our wants, all our desires, 
we want to lay those things on the cross and see those things put to death. And he says, thus it begins. So at the moment of Christ that we come to cross, come to know Jesus. It's not the moment we just die and that's it. He's saying, thus it begins. He says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave their home and their work in order to follow him. Or it may be like the death of Luther who had to leave the monastery to go out into the world. But however Christ is calling you, it is the same death every time. He's calling all of us to now experience death in Jesus Christ. Death of ourselves, which yields deeper life in Christ. The benefits of righteousness means that you can know him. You can become like him in his death. You have the power of his resurrection. You can know his sufferings. And one day, the greatest promise, attain to the resurrection of the dead. So the way that we were going to respond today is a little different than normal. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. But um, we're going to have a song first. And this song is going to be where we reflect on Christ and the gospel. We know that we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we should not take it in an unworthy manner, but but think and reflect on what he's done. And so when we think about our sin, we don't say, oh, I'm a sinner. I can't take it. We say, I am a sinner. Praise God for his death where he defeated all of it. And now he's invited me in to know him and I have the power of the resurrection in me. And so the Lord's Supper is, yes, a remembrance of sin and letting the mourning of that happen, but also a joyous celebration where all we can say is, all I have is Christ. And so during this first song, um, I want us all just to to listen to the words, to reflect on the Lord's Supper as as we're going to take it. When the song's over, come up or in the back and get the bread and the juice. This is only for believers. Um, If you're not a believer, the gospel will be proclaimed to you by watching it being taken. And I would just ask that you would refrain. But for those of you that are in Christ, after the song's over, come up and get the bread and the juice, and then I'll come back and lead us through the time of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll listen to the song and reflect on the gospel and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, I thank you that knowing you, knowing Christ, is calculated to thrill a man's heart. And so I pray for us all as we go into this time of response with Lord's Supper and then through worship, through song, that you would come now and help us prepare our hearts to not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, but instead remember that we are unworthy. And that all we have is Christ. And because of his death on the cross for us. And his resurrection. Showing us that he has defeated Satan, sin and death. And so we have that as well. That this would be a time of celebration and joy. As we reflect on the gospel through this song. We thank you for Christ. We praise in Jesus name. Amen.